Okay. Well, I just wanted to uh, record this because um, it relates to meditation, It relate, but it also relates to healing. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking about meditation and, and Buddhism. Technically, the podcast was supposed to be about healing uh, and meditation and diatribes. You've seen some of those recently, uh, but particularly about this journey. As I said, I began this podcast uh, when I was just trying to improve right, uh, the effectiveness of my meditation practice, my mindfulness practice, because I had gone completely natural in my healing. What I have is arguably uh, an autoimmune and an autoinflammatory disease, which turns out is important to a lot of people because inflammation seems to be at the root of just about everything. So I have a disease called hydrogenitis separativa. It's fairly rare, but I don't know. seems to be getting more uh, press lately. Then I have very severe allergies. So much so, I was unable to get my vaccines even when I was young. They were actually worried um, what we're going to go into here. They were worried that I'd have an overreaction. But in the case of the vaccines, they were afraid of what is called a cytokine storm. So an inflammatory response that can actually damage my organs and maybe even my brain. Uh, it comes from being allergic to all sorts of things. Uh, if you're allergic to food, you tend to have... Uh, allergies that are extreme enough to consider it an immune disease. But there's, I mentioned the mast cell activation, which could be more common than most people realize. But where does this even come from and how does this relate? Okay, so this morning we're sitting down to meditate and they start talking about vagal tone. They've talked about the vagus nerd before. And as I said, it's only a couple of years now that I've been looking at mainstream meditation and all that jazz. So I'm a little surprised at how quickly they've gone right into the science of this. So I stopped and went and looked and made sure that I didn't accidentally get into a, an app that is a bunch of pseudoscience mumbo jumbo. But lo and behold, no, no, vagal tone really does refer to the activity of the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve and a fundamental component of the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. So this is this new, we've talked about this, this idea that we can have some control over our parasympathetic uh, nervous system, right? We can control our heart rate by controlling our breathing. And, and this goes into this idea because the vagus nerve, and here I'll switch to the vagus nerve now, the vagus nerve itself is, it's wild and crazy because it uh, controls the heart, the lungs, the digestive tract, some muscles, um, so let's see here. I went down to uh, anyway, heart rate, uh, gastrointestinal peristalsis. So push it out, push it out. Sweating, muscle groups, including speech, um, parts of the ear. And what I found really interesting is it even has uh, some connections in the throat. It's responsible for the gag reflex. So reverse peristalsis as well. 
then I started to really pay attention when it mentions the 5-HT3 receptor, which is important to anxiety and depression because 5-HTP can be used uh, as an antidepressant. Well, it can help as an antagonist. Right? This also relates to my disease because stress and an allergic response can cause vomiting, so that reverse peristalsis. So it's starting to show this serious connection to the vagus nerve. But it's not that, you know, interesting until you look at, it's also epilepsy connected to uh, epilepsy. There's different uh, diseases attached to it. But for me, I also like to look on uh, these pages to see these connected terms. And so the inflammatory reflex, I clicked on just, you know, because like I said, that TNF was mentioned. It's just to explain the inflammatory reflex is a neural circuit. It regulates the immune response to injury and invasion. So this is why it's important. We've talked about this before, that in, in, uh, inflammation, uh, cortisol, stress response, uh, histamine, allergies, uh, you know, a bruise, pollen, uh, or an abscess, right? A break in the skin will be treated, you know, in similar ways. So, but what's interesting here is, again, we're talking about the vagus nerves, but the inflammatory reflex, they have both uh, a coming and going um, communication channel, right? What they call an afferent and an efferent arc. So back and forth. And they activate what's called cytokines. They can actually turn them off as well. So it's fully in control of our inflammatory response. Very apropos today for a couple of reasons, because that's actually a risk of what we're going through right now with the Rona. Rona is known to cause what's called a cytokine storm. So an overreaction of the uh, inflammatory reflex that can actually damage your um, organs. Now, this is important because, again, this is how I was able to start treating all my different diseases naturally. So I start looking here, and it's talking about a neurotransmitter, acetylcholine. I've heard this before. I can't remember how it directly relates, so I have that open in another tab. So I wanted to see if there's something I can glean from this. Is there a way to maybe reduce inflammation? But again, we're looking and it's talking about these specialized cells that produce uh, the acetylcholine that turn off this TNF. Now, the therapeutic potential here, if we can turn off this TNF, or as they say, target cytokine activity, They've been experimenting with arthritis, colitis, sepsis, hemorrhagic shock, congestive heart failure. And as I said, the wife, I think that's just what they've begun with. I mean, when it comes to inflammation, I think it'll apply to just about every disease. So before I go to the acetylcholine, I went to the TNF, right? So a TNF inhibitor. Well, first, 
what is uh, TNF? It's it's actually kind of weird uh, what it actually stands for. Um, hold on here, where it is. Hmm. It's funny, I lost where the definition of it was. funny that they don't anyway it's a scary uh what the tnf stands for it's kind of scary it's a tissue necrosis factor that's what it is now i remember so tissue necrosis factor and if you don't know what that is tissue means well you know flesh necrosis is actually mm, don't mean to get like rotting right um you know i guess the the nice way to equate it would be maybe um atrophy right uh, the idea that it starts to just degrade now the reason why this is important because tnf has become huge in this industry right anti tnf is used for rheumatoid arthritis. It's used for my disease, hydronitis separativa. I've talked about this before. It's used for gastrointestinal disease, people with uh, colitis, Crohn's, irritable bowel. But what's scary is it also has a side effect of possible cancer, but they're using it in cancer treatment. But even worse, for my particular disease, these drugs are still in clinical trials even 12 years after articles being written about using it for my disease. But what's sad is it's still in clinical trials, but the trials that have been completed show an effectiveness of half that of a placebo at year one. What does that mean? So placebo is a, it's a magical thing in the human being, because if you give someone a sugar pill, um, if they are, convinced faith convinced that this medication or protocol will work half the time it will work it's crazy but what we're talking about here is a biologic treatment with the side effects that can include cancer that is less effective than um just being positive, literally, right? If you're convinced that eating healthy and exercising and living right and thinking positively is going to help your disease, you have twice the chance of success than this medication that is making Pharmaceutical companies, just here in Canada as example, a minimum of half a million dollars a year. That's per patient, right? And as I said, they're only talking about what they've been approved for. What's sad is they use, say for example, HS, hydrodenitis separativa, being approved. This is an approved treatment. 
they'll actually use it to say, oh, well, um, this is an inflammatory problem too, so let's use it for this too. It worked for that, so it'll work for this. And arguably, don't quote me on this, I seem to remember they got it approved for one thing. It might have been rheumatoid arthritis. And they said, because, well, this this is an inflammatory thing too, and it works on TNF, then let's give it a go. And that's how it usually works. It's called biosimilars, you know, which, by the way, let's go and talk about this. Have we all heard of something called thalidomide? Thalidomide works on TNF as well. Thalidomide was originally approved. Uh, I can't quite remember what it was originally attempted to be used for, right? But they got it approved for uh, morning sickness, anxiety. Right? And it makes sense, right? Because we're learning here that anxiety, depression is arguably treated the same by infl inflammation as an injury or an invasion. But what's sad is this drug that was approved for morning sickness ended up causing incredible damage, birth defects and worse. So are some of our antidepressants. I mentioned 5-HTP, which perked my ears up, and lo and behold, some of our well-known antidepressants are actually um, related to TNF, right? Because the vagus nerve. So rather than looking at dealing directly with the vagus nerve, they're trying to play with strictly the, the inflammatory response. And it, that explains why this bupropion, because I myself have used it uh, when they thought my uh, hydrodenitis was a mood uh, dis disorder like anxiety or depression. So for me, all it did was give me essentially kind of like an amphetamine sort of, um, right? Cause it is a methyl phenyl ethyl thylamine or something. It is essentially an amphetamine can even test in your, uh, in, in drug tests as an amphetamine. But lo and behold, it's also, uh, you know, acting on the TNF, uh, the, the tissue necrosis factor or the, the uh, inflammatory response, right? And the reason why I mentioned that, and I kind of, you know, mentioned it, is I chose to go the way of food elimination and lifestyle changes, as I said, the reason why for the podcast, I started keeping track because at the time I didn't know what we were actually dealing with. And I was uh, eating anti-inflammatory, but of course I also didn't realize some of the food I was eating was causing some reactions. But again, doubt, right? It wasn't until I found out what my disease was and really started to see that what I was doing, like I said before, that I found the studies talking about using zinc gluconate, uh, dairy, yeast, and then, um, and then, as I said, when I found uh, a study that used a flavonoid from Tulsi uh, to treat a disease, since we've seen what uh, flavonoids and cannabinoids can do, I went and looked, and lo and behold, I found mint, another one that carries a lot of these compounds 
terpenes, cisquiterpenes, triterpenes, flavonoids. I found that mint carried something called diamine oxidase. It's something that turns off the histamine, right? How many times have we heard about mint being relaxing? Sometimes even mentions of anti-inflammatory. But what's funny is they run home to mama and they think it's some of these terpenes, right? Like an aroma compound, an ether, an ether, a smell that's going to give you this anti-inflammatory response. That always made me wonder. But if we stop and realize how early we are in the science, the fact that I have been saying this for years, that I think it's the low frequency compounds in cannabis that are the true beneficial. And just recently watched a podcast where a doctor out of the University of Florida said the same about kratom. Mitangyanine, don't, don't quote me on the pronunciation. I'm not good with the new words. So here we sit that nature seems to have uh, treatment protocols that work without all of these side effects. And yet we ignore it and call it pseudoscience in favor of drugs that don't even work as good as delusion or visualization. <laughs> Pardon my rhetoric. Because here I am on a web page. What is a TNF inhibitor? Right? These are drugs that help stop inflammation. Let's be honest. These are drugs that they believe help reduce overactive inflammation. But what else are they doing? They're used to treat diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, plaque psoriasis. Uh, oh, geez, they would have put me on it for sure. Probably with my uh, atopic dermatitis from my allergies and, uh, and sensitivity and add in uh, the HS. Who knows? But it, like I said, it goes to the ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Uh, they, they probably would put someone on colitis, anybody on IBS, anything inflammatory, right? Even if they haven't tested for it, they'll just say, well, it's close enough. But we have these drugs like Humira. Then we have three others that are biosimilar to Humira. I love how they call that biosimilar. They're just clones, but they're not identical. Biosimilar, why? Because Humira is, uh, what is that? Is that a B or a D? Adda or Abba? Abba? Adalimumab? Adalimumab? That's Humera. And Adalimumab, ADBM, called Siltezo, is so it's they've added you know something on you know what i mean like a metal methyl something to the methyl group or the ethyl group like we've seen this with uh, research chemicals we've seen this with these um uh, synthetic 
psychedelics and compounds that they use. That's all they've gone and done here, right? Uh, Humera got approved in a certain format and they like they went and found a compound and they can add uh, a methyl group to it without changing the efficacy in a great way and hey let's get approved but what we don't realize is what some of this stuff might do and yet that's only a small portion of uh these gene therapies so don't quote me on that i mean loose definition right i mean it's it's trying to play with these uh natural responses and and what do we know might end up happening so anyways i thought it was interesting that uh, how this kind of all went circular wife saw that and i was just wanting to share with her this morning that my gosh look at this like how this meditation app led us to something called the vagus nerve that relates not only to both of our diseases but everybody's problem we were just watching a video where they were asking what people had learned from uh from the pandemic and almost everybody talked about needing to be a better person being happy uh alone and then you know what that means being happy with yourself um working on or with yourself that sort of idea right and that's what this is right if you if you realize that the vagus nerve is responsible for our heart rate, our breathing. You add that with what they call the 55 rule or, or the placebo, as I mentioned. And then I add one more to it. If you look at the power of visualization, have you ever had a dream of falling and it felt more real than real can? We see almost a unity uh, here where the vagus nerve is attached to the inflammation. And geez, I lost my way on that. I apologize. All I meant to say was it began with just, uh, I was like, well, geez, why do they keep talking about this vagus nerve? How does it relate? And led in the end to. I mean, I'm going to look into that acetylcholine to see if there's some way that we can encourage our bodies to produce more of it, right? To, uh, to turn off the, uh, the necrosis factor. That's a terrible sounding. I wonder why they call it TNF, right? Tissue necrosis. I mean, it just sounds terrible. But uh, similar to what I fell on myself, like I said, I uh, started doing my own research, found out that coffee might not be good. I originally thought it was because of uh, contamination. Right? And then we went to, uh, I went to tea and I thought the same. So I went to organic tea, dairy-free. Still found, a, found um, some more information, a study that was talking about how uh, this dark, dark teas and coffees actually uh, interfere with DAO, that diamine oxidase I mentioned. And I followed that breadcrumb trail to essentially what was another accident I fell upon because I hadn't read about that till after I realized that maybe it was the caffeine, right? Because what I started with, oh, sorry, buried the lead there, but I started with the, the, the tea because 
uh, I didn't want to take a drug that is always uh, prescribed to someone with my disease. And again, my memory's the pits here, but it doesn't matter. It's a potassium sparing diuretic. So it makes you pee a lot, but it doesn't make you lose all your potassium because that's important to the disease. What I learned from that was how important potassium and I found from that other, the, these uh, magnesium, for example, and uh, getting enough salt. But what I, what I was doing was I was thinking that the caffeine making you pee more than you drank more water. I thought that was being helpful. But what I ended up thinking uh, was maybe the caffeine was not helping. So I, we switched to mint tea just because I thought, well, geez, maybe that'll be easier. Because I found, you know, drinking the tea easier than drinking gallons of water. I mean, everyone does say that. And I felt the same. It's water, water, water. It's tough. And I stole it from my grandmother, Grace. Uh, she used to drink uh, warm water in the evening because she found drinking the tea. And that might have been where the idea came from, too, because she uh, stopped drinking tea uh, later in the afternoon. So she got older. She found it helped her. So I fell upon this idea uh, that mint was actually playing a part in my healing. And same as what I fell upon here is uh, science is teaching meditation, is meditation teaching science? I think it is. And yet, in the end, the answer almost seems to lie within ourselves. That's really, I guess, the main takeaway I want to explain here. Um, arguably, everything we seem to try to play with is a shortcut to the real solution of just, you know, you yourself doing better, right? If, if the human placebo works half the time when you're convinced, well, we just have to stop uh, doubting ourselves. Uh, and honestly, it's in there, it relates back to the Buddhism. Someone asked me how, how a non-theistic uh, thought system, I don't want to say religion, other people are upset by that. It doesn't bother me calling Buddhism a religion. But how can a non-theistic uh, system have faith as an important part? And uh, very simply, uh, without faith, you're stuck in ignorance, right? Because faith is the opposite of ignorance, not, not what we all think, doubt, right? Doubt is an important part of faith. Because as uh, uh, faulty creatures, as we all are, we're unable, uh, arguably, to even imagine what uh, perfection really is. But uh, the truth of it is, the truth of it is, is that uh, yeah. The truth of it is, uh, the power is within us for healing. I mean, uh, speaking with, with a nurse who hit it dead on, I mean, the truth of it is, a large portion of the disease and sickness we all deal with could be, could be treated with, uh, with lifestyle and diet changes. But I argue 
uh, entire industries have been based on the idea that we're able to visualize our own healing. We're able to uh, manifest what we desire, but only when it's beneficial, it seems, right? If you think about it. And once again, I think it might boil down to the vagus nerve. I've always said that karma is essentially, um, you know, you're as ye reap, sorry, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. The idea of karma to me was simply guilt. These people that, for example, might be investing in these horrible companies, making great, great profits and returns. But I always felt that at some point they would sit down and the guilt of their callous actions would eat away at them. And that's maybe where the vagus nerve comes in. And I don't know how we can deny this truth. If we're able to convince ourselves of something wholly just by believing it, how is it impossible that our guilt isn't eating away at us inside bit by 